Today's title is How Jesus Died. How Jesus Died. Not so much why, although that, of course, will come into it. But it strikes me that if you want to know how to live well, you need to know how to die well. And there's something about that. How do we die well? How we live and how we die, they, they're connected. And the way that Jesus died was connected to how he lived. His death was not meaningless. His death was not purposeless. It connected with the whole of his life. And I pray and hope that our lives, when we come to the end of it, that our deaths will not be meaningless. There'll be a purpose to them. We'll see the way that we lived our lives fitted with the way that we die. Jesus shows us this. And so we're going to be in our passage today looking at the death burial of Jesus from the uh, second half of Mark chapter 15 uh, as the latest part in our road to the resurrection, which we're coming to, of course, next Sunday, because next Sunday is Easter. And so we'll be looking at Mark 16 next week. But now we're coming to that penultimate point of how do we get to the resurrection? We get to the resurrection through the death of Jesus, through the cross. So Simon comes along and uh, this chap, Simon of Cyrene, let's go through some bits and pieces here and then we'll pick out some thoughts for us. Simon was minding his own business, right? Minding his own business, wandering in from the countryside and someone says, oi you, some Roman soldier, roll you, carry the cross. Presumably that means Jesus was so weakened by his ordeal, uh, his trial, his being up all night, maybe a couple of nights and uh, his flogging and everything else, he couldn't actually carry the cross any longer. I once, years ago, uh, picked up a beam, roughly what was said to be about the weight of a cross, and it was one of those, it's like a railway sleeper. You imagine one of those really heavy, creosote-soaked railway sleepers? It's about the same weight. And I once picked up one of those, actually I did it at a church service in Crookwood years ago, where we, I asked a volunteer to come up and, uh, and, and feel the weight of the cross, and they put this beam sort of on there across their shoulder, and it's incredibly heavy. It's not a small piece of wood. You can stagger a, a fit person uh, under its weight. So Simon ends up uh, carrying this. I uh, wasn't expecting it. Um, up a street rather like this. This is a photograph of Jerusalem from a few years ago when Penny and I were there. Uh, traditionally, there is the Via Dolorosa, as it's called, which is meant to be the route Jesus took to the cross. Certainly, uh, it would have been a street very like this. Narrow, uh, tall sides jostling crowds. This was not some dignified profession. This was a tough, tough spot. And so Simon carries the cross to the place of the skull, uh, which is not this place. You may see photographs of this. It's uh, what they think, some people think, uh, is Golgotha, because if you look carefully, you can make out the, um, the, the shape of a skull, right? And Golgotha means the place of the skull. Some people think you can see sort of two faces, two eyes, and then a nose where, the, a place where the nose would be. And somebody in the 19th century decided that this was the place, um, Chapel Gordon, I think. But in fact, no, it's not there, although uh, they, well, that's, that's legend for you. But we do know that he was crucified. Um, skeptics have claimed in the past that uh, Jesus would not have been crucified. People didn't cruci weren't crucified at that point. In the 1960s, uh, they found this, which is part of a heel bone with a, uh, an iron spike through it. Uh, yeah, but it's pretty gruesome. This is a photograph I took in the Israel Museum in Israel. And the, uh, it's the heel bone of um, somebody who was crucified. The rest of the body or the bones are in an ossuary, uh, which is a bone box. Uh, this is the heel. And the, the spike is there because the end of it got bent and they couldn't remove it. So normally they take the spikes out after they crucified somebody so they could, re could reuse them because they are valuable. 
but this one got bent somehow, and so it got left in the heel button. So we do know that people were crucified. It's not a legend. It actually did happen that people were crucified, and the, and the story of Jesus being crucified is entirely, uh, entirely plausible. This person who was crucified would have been crucified like this. So this gives you a visual depiction of the way this one was crucified. So he didn't have his uh, hands or wrists nailed to the cross, this one. He was bound to the cross, and only the feet were fixed in the way that you can see there. Jesus was fixed by his it says hands, but the, the word for hand covers the whole of the wrist area. So he would have been crucified uh, through the wrist, uh, which we won't go into all of that detail now, but that is what happened. So we have physical evidence of the crucifixion uh, from archaeology. We have evidence from reason that the a crucifixion happened. Why would you, as a new religious movement, preach the crucifixion, which was uh, uh, accorded to only criminals in those days? Why would you preach a criminal crucifixion, uh, execution, if he was trying to start some new religion. It doesn't make any sense. So the, that very fact strengthens the case uh, for the resurrection. And we have the evidence from church tradition in that the early church preached no other end to the life of Jesus other than his death on a cross. All these things add up to give us tremendous confidence, amongst many other things, that Jesus was actually crucified. And so um, we come to the wine. The wine is offered to him. Why doesn't he drink it? What do you think? Isn't it interesting? Yes. Could have actually like pain relief. Right. Would have reduced the impact. Yeah, Dan? Fulfilling prophecy. There are some suggestions. I think it's Psalm, might be Psalm 69. I don't have the reference in front of me. Yeah. Any other ideas why he refused to drink the wine mixed with myrrh? Um, it's a bad aesthetic. You might want to have a drink of it. He might not have had full control. Uh, possibly, yes. Fernando? Again, until he'd come in his kingdom. Even, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's serious. That's serious um, spiritual insight there. Uh, you preaching next week. So, um, so we, have, we don't know exactly why because the, the text doesn't tell us. But there's something I think connected with all three of the things you mentioned or four things that were mentioned here. I think Jesus does not want to diminish the impact of what's happening. I think he wants to fully experience what God is doing in him on the cross. So he doesn't take the wine for any intoxicating effect. It's also the fact that normally if you were going to give somebody like a drug, you'd mix it with frankincense. That, was, that gave a soporific effect. But myrrh, not so much. We don't quite know why the myrrh. But also he did say, as you say, Fernando, that he wasn't going to take any wine until he came in his kingdom. And he hadn't yet come in that sense yet, right? So it shows how disciplined and focused he is even, even as he's being nailed to a cross. This demonstrates that, uh, something about Jesus that is so admirable, such strength from his father that he could handle this kind of trauma that for most of us, dare I say all of us, would have sent us completely out of our minds. What strength he had comes from the father. So, uh, oh, by the way, that's a photograph of St. Lemonade. Um, 
uh, the, uh, when I was driving home the other day, I saw some young girls yelling at everybody that, uh, that went past. And I stopped and walked back. And they, they were two preteen girls, local neighbors of ours, uh, who were waving things about Ukraine. They had a Ukrainian flag they'd sort of crayoned. And they were selling cookies and lemonade in aid of Ukrainian charities. I thought it was so sweet. And I bought this lemonade, which was uh, no longer fizzy, no longer cold, and no longer tasted of particularly of lemonade. Um, and, but, it, uh, but I was glad to pay um, five pounds for... <laughs> well, all I had in my wallet was fives, tens, and twenties, and they weren't getting a twenty or a ten, so... But I, no, you know, it's funny. I, 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 was glad to give, I was glad to give them a fiver for something I didn't need because of what it represented. And there's something about, something about sometimes things are, are, what they represent is more important than what's actually happening. What's happening with Jesus is so much more important than just a, the death of a person. There's something much more deep and powerful going on right here. So he's not going to save himself. Let's talk about three things here. First of all, darkness. Darkness is in the next passage from verse uh, 33. Darkness comes over the whole land until three. That's noon till three. And at that time, he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness comes over the, the earth. This might remind us of judgment. Amos 8 in that day, this is the day of judgment, uh, the prophet is describing, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Maybe Jesus has this in mind, not that he's causing the darkness, I don't think directly, but there's something going on with judgment. Or, or Exodus 10, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. You've probably been in that kind of darkness at some point. So he did that, stretched his hand out over the sky, total darkness for three days. And that's partly about judgment, God's judgment on Pharaoh and, his, and, and Egypt. And it's partly about the precursor to freedom for the people of Israel. And that's what's happening in a sense here uh, at Calvary, is darkness as a precursor to the freedom that will be declared by the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also have here, I think, um, a paradoxical and ironic reversal of light and darkness. Who is Jesus? One of his titles he, he, uh, he uses of himself he is the light of the world. He's come to bring the true light, and yet he is absorbed here by darkness. Darkness at noon perhaps is a fitting sign for God the Creator to give to those who rejected the light of the world. Darkness here is felt at the brightest time of the day. 12 noon in that, time, in that place is the brightest time of the day. Darkness is felt at the brightest time of the day as the brightest person who's ever lived slipped into darkness. Paradoxes, ironies. And perhaps, perhaps it's also symbolic of God the Father hiding his face from his son. Because sin is now having its, in a sense, having its way its effect on Jesus. As somebody I read wrote, evidently the execution of Jesus has not gone unnoticed by the heavens, which recoil from viewing the spectacle. It's like the heavens can't bear to watch. 
as indeed can we in some ways, not bad to think and watch. So we have darkness, and with a loud cry, it says Jesus breathed his last in verse 37. And then the curtain is torn in two. We'll come back to that in a moment. He breathes his last with a loud cry. How does he die? He dies with a loud cry. What kind of cry is it? It's interesting that it's recorded. Why not just say, and then he died? But it says, with a loud cry, he died. Let's speculate a little bit. What do you think? Why a loud cry? Why is that recorded? Not just a cry, but a loud cry, he breathed his last. And then we get the veil torn in two. What do you think might be the reason for that? Any ideas? Yeah, Dan. Relief? Relief? Yeah, that sense of relief, it's done. Yeah. Um, yeah, Becky? I like to think that it was triumphant. Right. Because I feel like if it's complete defeat, it's not so much a loud cry like to the end, but perhaps more of almost a whimper. Mm. Um, but I like to think it's like a triumphant, yes, it's the plan is fulfilled, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's think about, um, I hate to bring sadness, extra sadness into the room, but uh, the game yesterday between Leeds and Watford. Um, <laughs> let's, let's think at the end of the match, who was singing loudest? Yeah. It wouldn't have been the Watford supporters, right? <laughs> okay, good point. Lucia? I was, well, I was talking to you about the story, but I, I like it. It's not, uh, what Okay. All right. Yes, Neil. I think it implies that he's been fully conscious throughout the entire time. Fully conscious. Yes. It does indeed. Yes. It's also about timing. You know, for those coming afterwards, saying at that moment the curtain is split and he cried, you know, so it's like it's it's everything is purposeful. Right. And makes sense. It's connected. Mm-hmm. You get the cry and the tearing of the veil at the same moment. Okay, that's meaningful. Simon. Being separated from God the Father, from the Father. Mm. Could be, couldn't it? I mean, we're not told precisely, and that means we have to be a little cautious about our speculation. The reason why speculation, by the way, this is a bonus point, if you like, but The reason why some speculation is valuable is because it can help take us more into what's happening. It doesn't mean that we're right about our ideas, but it helps us to engage with what might have been going on, takes us into the passage more than if we're just standing back from it and saying, that happened, then that happened, oh, by the way, that happened, oh, well, now I know what happened. We only know on an intellectual level then what happened. The heart level, we have to engage by, and this is just one of those things in personal Bible study, If you want to get more out of your Bible, you've got to use your imagination. Don't trust your imagination to give you the accurate uh, interpretation necessarily, but use your imagination to get more out of what's already actually there. Anyway, that's a side point. Um, We don't know exactly why, but it is connected, this passage, with uh, with Psalm 22, right? Um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A Psalm of David, Jesus is quoting it. 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Um, it's on the mind of Jesus. The psalm is expressing something very powerful and deep about separation or whether, whether se separation in reality or separation in the feeling of being separated. Uh, it, we, it, it's, we don't know exactly, right? Is it the sense of being forsaken? the feeling of it, or is it the actual nature of having been forsaken? Not clear. David uh, was not forsaken by God. And I, I think it'd be hard to agree that Jesus was fully forsaken by God. And there are different theories about the atonement, exactly what happens on the cross, whether Jesus is separated spiritually from the Father or something else is happening is a debate that theologians have had for 2,000 years. And I don't have any new insights on that. But what I am going to say is that it's a cry of anguish. It's a cry of anguish connected somewhere to a cry of triumph. Because the rest of Psalm 22, which we don't have time to go into now, but the rest of it does end triumphantly. It does end positive. There's a lot of it that's very positive. It's not one of those Psalms which is like, I might as well give up. Where are you, God? You've let me down. You've abandoned me. I'm off. It's not that kind of Psalm. It's like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Why is this happening? but I trust you. And I think that's what Jesus is thinking and feeling at this point. He's like, I, I, nothing in his life could have prepared him on an emotional, spiritual level for what is happening. You couldn't be prepared for this. So that sense of shock, even for Jesus, is there. Even though he knew this is where it was going to end, but the reality was something he couldn't prepare for. And yet he still trusts God because he doesn't say, my God, my God, I'm giving up. In fact, he still calls God, God. It's still a cry of faith on one level. And I think personally, that's very inspiring because <laughs> there are times when I don't understand what God is doing. I'm the faintest, and it annoys me what's happening in my life. It doesn't look to me like God's interested sometimes. Like, where are you, God, in this? I don't know if you've ever felt that. Or even if you haven't felt it in your life, you look around in the world today, and you think, what is God up to? When is he going to do something? We have to hold on to our trust in him while we wait for him to do his thing at the right time. The resurrection was three days after, uh, the resurrection was after, three days after the, the death of Christ. The right time. The right time had to come. And then the, the veil is torn. The curtain of the temple, verse 38, is torn into from top to bottom, and then the centurion cries out. He cries out, surely this man was the son of God. And why did he say that? Because he saw how Jesus died. He saw how he died. What an interesting phrase. What an interesting observation. The curtain is torn in two. Why is the curtain torn in two? Well, uh, partly because we're being shown that the, there is a change in the covenant. The old covenant said this thus far and no further. You can come in here, but you can't go any further towards God. And now what's happening is that that barrier has been taken away and God is saying, no, 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 all oh, come in. Come into the most holy place. Come into the closest place. Come in and have the kind of relationship with me that humankind has always needed that we had in Eden. Adam and Eve in Eden. That, that's what we had then. You can have that again now. That's what's going on, I think. Uh, the word torn for the curtain being torn in two is the same word used in Mark 1 verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, 
he saw heaven being torn open, spirit descending on him uh, like a dove. dove. Jesus' death opens the way to direct access to God. That's what his death does for us. It ends the previous covenant. Temple worship is over in that old sense. And in fact, ironically, he has destroyed the temple. Funny that his accusers accused him saying, you said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. Well, in a way, he does destroy it by his death because the temple's torn and then the temple doesn't have any function anymore in that sense. And because of that, we have these wonderful promises. And if you ever want to, during a time of taking bread and wine communion, just to reflect on some passages, uh, I have a friend I remember when I was a very young Christian who I noticed was always during the time of bread and wine would always have her Bible open. Uh, it was Vicky Jacoby, uh, anyone know? And she'd always have a Bible open at 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11. And when we're taking bread and wine, she'd just have it there and reflecting on what the communion meant. And there are some parts of the New Testament that are really valuable for reflecting on the meaning of what Jesus did and why we take bread and wine. And I think this is one of them. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with sincere, sincere uh, uh, with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith gives, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let's consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Why do we gather? Why do we fellowship? Because we have access to God because of what he's done for us. That's why we do these things. Similarly, in a way, in Ephesians 2, remember that at that time in the past, you were separate, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God, in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. It's made the two groups one. Destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both, all peoples, he's talking about here, Jew and Gentile, all have access to the Father by one spirit. Because of what Jesus has done, his death, we have that access. And the centurion there knows something extraordinary has happened. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, did he fully understand the theology behind all that? I doubt it. But he saw something different. Most likely he was one of the soldiers who had beaten Christ earlier. And now he sees how he dies. He admires, I think, the strength and the courage displayed by Jesus. Perhaps he's impressed with the strength with which he died as opposed to the weakness he was used to observing when other people were 
crucified. But I think there's more than that. Because to say that he's the son of God is to say what a centurion would normally only say of Caesar. He's making some other kind of observation of allegiance or recognition that there, are, there aren't two Caesars. And one of those Caesars is human and one is not. You see something in Jesus here. It's like he's switching allegiance at this, at this moment. And the women are there. God bless the courageous women. After all, the men have run away. The women are there uh, watching what's going on and noticing. And then the burial happens um, on the, uh, the day before. Uh, it was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. The evening is approaching. Joseph of Arimathea comes. He himself is waiting for the kingdom. He goes boldly to Pilate, asks for the body. Pilate's surprised that Jesus is already dead. Finds out it's true, so he allows the body to go with Joseph. He takes some linen cloth, wraps the body, places it in a tomb cut out of rock, rolls the stone over it, and the women see what's happened right here. Normally, crucified bodies were left on the cross for scavengers to consume. They, were, they weren't treated well. For some reason, Joseph who seems to have been some kind of closet disciple of some kind, decides uh, he can't stand for that. And Pilate's probably happy because having a body on a cross during the, during the Sabbath was a bad thing for Judaism, and there might have been a few Jews, and there might have been some riots, and so Pilate likes a quiet life, so he, he agrees to this. Joseph of Arimathea is not a family member. Normally the family would bury their dead. It reminds us that Jesus has been completely abandoned. How did Jesus die? How did he die? He died with courage. He died with dignity. He died trusting in God. He died loving his enemies, including us. He died with hope despite what he was about to endure. He died for you. He died for me. When I was thinking about this all this week, um, I was reminded of a hymn that some of us will know, which we haven't sung for many years. And it's called 10,000 Angels. And you remember in the garden, Jesus said, you need not think I could not call on 12 legions of angels and they'd come and rescue me, but the will of the Father must be fulfilled. And that's why Jesus goes to the cross. The lyrics, I think I've got them here, yes. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior, so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Upon his precious head, they placed a crown of thorns. They laughed and said, behold the king. They struck him and they cursed him and they mocked his holy name. 
All alone, he suffered everything. Could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. To the howling mob, he yielded. He did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame he took alone. And when he cried, it's finished. He gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. How did Jesus die? He died loving you and me. Esther's going to come up and pray for us now so that then we can take the bread and wine together. So Esther, please do come and pray for us.